Welcome back to Digital Media and Tech in Dubai, presenting the second episode of our brand new podcast focused on bringing listeners topical segments and informative conversations with local experts, exploring the latest news and developments in the digital media and tech scene in the burgeoning international capital that is Dubai. I'm your host, Spencer Stryker, professor of digital media at the American University in Dubai. All the episodes are recorded on location at AUD in the heart of Dubai's media city. Special guest for episode two, Paz Knows Digital Dubai, is Joe Akawi. He is the chief digital officer at Paz Marketing, an influential PR firm based here in the city, which he co-founded back in 2007 with his father, and his sister. As a graduate of the American University in Dubai, Joe went from earning an IT degree in 2004 to working in web development in the early 2000s to running all digital and social for Paz, where he now manages very interesting clients from the hot startup Fetcher to the iconic American mega brand Harley Davidson. Topics discussed in episode two include the growth of Paz marketing in Dubai during the city's dynamic decade from 2007 to 2016. Joe's opinions on who are the key social media influencers in the region right now, including people like Max Varavia, Bin Baz, and Huda Beauty. We talk about how the expansion of Paz marketing has mirrored the rise of the Dubai startup scene these past 10 years whereby certain key startups have hired Paz to help scale them toward rapid impact. Finally, Joe provides some expert insights on how to approach a Snapchat marketing play in the city, as well as some forecasts for the future of Digital Dubai. Hope you enjoy episode two of Digital Media and Tech in Dubai, Paz Knows Digital. To get started, why don't you just describe, I guess, your career path and how you got to where you are today as the Chief Digital Officer at Paz Marketing. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, well, I began originally my career in um, what early during my university days. I originally was the first batch of IT graduates from the American University in Dubai. And back then, AUD was the only university who actually offered this curriculum. So, mm. as the only university in Dubai, or in, in, the, in the region, who in had a region. very specific BIT course, a Bachelor's of Information Technology. And um, growing up, basically being enamored by things like MIRC, uh, very basic JavaScript coding, mm -hmm. GeoCities those days in the late mm -hmm. 90s, when web was still kind of very new and exciting to us. We're all on dial-up. Mm -hmm. Joining IT made a very, um, very exciting. Opportunity and, and what year did you program. graduate again? 2004 was when I graduated. Um, and my career began in mid 2002 when I uh, got picked up by Leo Burnett for a gig in web development. I was in charge of very basic HTML coding, working on some clients uh, such as Nokia, and stuck through that till around 2006. And the natural progression, being a developer who wants to kind of grow, who didn't want to remain a developer for the rest of his life, was to move towards project management of. Uh, development projects. So mm -hmm. it's kind of like now I have the hands-on experience. I'm going to move towards uh, managing people who do this. Right. And from that moment, moved away um, from just sitting behind the keyboard all the time and typing to actually managing client relationships, meeting people, going out to meetings, presenting ideas, and the progression of that growth. The, the companies you worked yeah. for during that time are what? Um, from from Leo Burnett, I moved over to Grey Worldwide, mm -hmm. and after Grey Worldwide, I had a bit of a small stop over at Flip Media, 
post Flip Media, I moved to the BBDO group where I joined Impact Proximity. Mm -hmm. And post that is when we started Paz Marketing. We kind of decided that we're going to bring different disciplines in, one of them being uh, IT and development from my end. And another family member came from a very heavily PR and marketing background. So merging those two together in the start of 2008 um, made a very attractive um, program for us. And basically, right around the mid of 2008 is when things kind of got, got sour globally. We were starting to hear about all this uh, global crash coming. Right, right when you started yeah. your company. Pretty much, yeah. I mean, wow, that that must yeah. have been a little unnerving, huh? I mean, we, we kind of took it in a way that we were going to be unemployed anyways. I mean, we've heard from so many people jobs were being slashed left, right, and center. Mm -hmm. And like, we had a very small, quaint office in the middle of Dara. We never really paid attention to any mm. of this, and. Um, Naturally, there was a lot of opportunity in a scene like that because a lot of people had to rebrand their image. Okay. People who showed up at the door of PR agencies back then were thinking, good God, papers are just reporting that we're all gone bankrupt, we're not doing well, so we, how do we re rebuild this image of ours? Mm -hmm. And that's where PR agencies kind of rose as an alternative to, to traditional advertising. And okay. that was before even social as a platform became as big as, as it is today. Right, 2008 was yeah. the dawn of that kind Basically, of I mean, space. Twitter was two years old, Facebook was I think around three out of beta after it left the university That's platform. Right, yeah. So things were very um, very new back then. Right. And then um, through past marketing's growth over time, we've started expanding outside the PR sphere because the lines started to get blurred between disciplines. So social started growing to the point where we could no longer do PR without it. So we had to kind of extend our discipline to offer that as a service as digital media. And we made a very conscious decision back then to not be 100% digital because um, that involves a lot of disciplines. Because digital, a lot of people, unfortunately, is just it's either social, it's either web development, SEO, SEM. So you kind of have to consider the fact that do you specialize in one of the many digital disciplines available, or do you just go 100% digital and then offer everything? Mm -hmm. And we didn't want to be like a one-stop shop for everything. We just wanted to kind of focus on social as a platform. It was okay. the most exciting one back then. Sure. And that was part of the extension of what we already offered in terms of PR. So you said you made a decision when you launched Paz Marketing 2008, shortly after that, to focus exclusively on social. Yeah, right? it, was, it was to become one of the pillars, basically, of the company. And so what? And so I'm sure social media has changed a lot mm -hmm. in in Dubai in the last yeah. eight years. Can yeah. you speak to like what what that's been like for you, watching the kind of trends in social media over the course of the last eight years or so in I'm, in Dubai specifically? I, I mean, just in general, Dubai naturally is one of the uh, biggest ones in the market. When we consider social on a regional level, uh, the big names are always Saudi and Egypt. Those mm -hmm. two are the biggest uh, markets everyone is always interested in, uh, in. They're the most active online. And if you go a bit also t towards North Africa, Algeria and Morocco are very active markets. But people tend to kind of be wary of jumping in there because French is a national language and people haven't really cracked bilingual speaking on social here Interesting. yet. You find a lot of brands still struggling with do we actually localize all posts? Do we speak in Arabic? Do we launch two separate platforms? One okay. English, one Arabic? Do we speak all in one location? These are the challenges. Yeah. It sounds like these are the challenges you deal with all the time. We, we do, and in a lot of cases, um, there, were, there was a very certain obsession very early on, um, which I think still, we were still seeing parts of it remain in the industry here where people are obsessed with like hard follower numbers, where if you were to mm -hmm. approach someone to work with, they're not, consider, um, they're not particularly concerned with how well you do as a page, as mm -hmm. opposed to how much you reach. Mm -hmm. And that's not exactly a metric that defines success um, right off the bat. I mean, there are people who blatantly pay to grow their communities. Right. From like, like farms, like bots or whatever it is, they grow this 
number of followers and then they go and they sell themselves that we have this massive reach. And then so how do you differentiate that between hard followers and what you might call like quality followers? I mean, in general, it comes down to a lot of experience with who we've worked with. We've tried going down the route of actually bringing someone on board who has a massive community around them, hypothetically, given the number of followers they have. Mm -hmm. And we haven't seen the results that they promised. Meanwhile, you see... Is that what you mean? That's yeah. kind of like the social equivalent of like a celebrity endorsement or something? Basically, like that? yeah. I mean, the, the influencer category has blown up massively right. in Dubai. And um, part of it is, an, is a mistake to a lot of PR agencies, such as, such as ourselves, who actually agreed to pay the ridiculous, maybe, funds or numbers that these people have requested. There are mm -hmm. people who ask for upwards of $30,000 to show up at events, uh, mm. post for you on social social media, and we've had first I mean, these are the, yeah. in, the key influencers who do that. I mean, yeah, who are these people who can get $30,000 to show up? <clears throat> There's a lot of them. There's, who comes to mind yeah. as the top? Folks? I mean, in, in terms of like actual hard money, who are just oh, the top uh, people that command the most, the top influencers in Europe? I, mean, I asked the same question yeah. to Maha last week, too. I mean, in general, are we talking? As in, when is this question asking me who would ask for this much money, or is it who are the big names who I would look at here, for example? I guess both. Yeah. Maybe both. Because I mean, the money thing is very, it varies. There are okay. people with massive communities who ask for nothing. There are people who actually enjoy working with the brand so much that come for free. There are people who would really ask for like a small sum, just kind oh, of I see. pay, I see pay for their time I see in that getting. sense. But when you look at like the big names that float around in most cases here, who the mm. beauty comes to mind. Uh, Max of Arabia comes to mind, uh, Taim Al-Falasi comes to mind, um, you have also like Ben Baz. Uh, I mean, there's, there are, there's a lot of names. And it, I think the, the challenge here is to focus down on what's the most suitable for the industry or client you want to actually work with. Mm -hmm. Because if you were to, for example, work with someone like uh, Max of Arabia, he might not be the best fit for, let's say, a makeup brand. Right. But he might be more fit for, let's say, an adventure style uh, brand who are looking, for example, at doing desert safaris or travel or and he's a bit of a character because he's American but speaks fluent Khaliji Arabic mm -hmm. which takes people always by surprise so mm -hmm. he has a bit of an edge to all the content he produces mm -hmm. in that sense so it really kind of varies who you want to work with based on what you want to achieve really because okay. there isn't a correct formula at the moment right. it's not as easy as just saying oh, that's where your expertise yeah. comes in I think well I, I'd like to I'd like to think so yes <laughs> I mean we, we've had a lot of success we've had a lot of failures to say we haven't is uh, unrealistic but it's taught us a lot I mean well let's come back to the growth of your company so yeah. we, that's we, we got on this thread because mm. we talked about 2008 you launched the company then the financial mm. crisis hit then you made the decision to focus on social mm -hmm. uh, so over the last eight years let's talk about sort of the what are some of the um, trials and tribulations mm. you've gone through in terms of expanding the, the business here? I mean, I'll have to attribute a massive part of our success to actually work with the rise of the startup scene. Okay. What happened is around 2009, um, a very big company out of Jordan called Jabbar Group started expanding its wings. They've launched a lot of dot-coms online, such as Kabon, Sukkar. There was a massive growth of Souq, which they had their hands in. Souq.com. yes. And uh, a lot of these smaller companies kind of knocked at the door and saying, people still, still don't understand what shopping online means. Mm -hmm. This is, we're talking eight years ago from now. This is even yeah. though it was already popular in the US with Amazon. Absolutely, and, so and banks weren't as creative as they are today with providing online solutions in terms of how you pay with a credit card, mm -hmm. how do you transfer money using a mobile app. Most banks never really had a mobile app in 2007, 2008. Right. You wouldn't dream of telling someone, oh, just click a couple of buttons on your phone and I'll get the money in my account. Mm -hmm. Now it's become second nature. Right. Or at least in Dubai it has. There has been rapid yeah. adoption of technology in Absolutely. Dubai. Absolutely. Right. And the UAE as a country has the world's highest 
well, at least, or either first or second highest mobile penetration. We're looking mm. at around 73%. Mm. And in a lot of cases, a lot of people carry more than one handset. Mm -hmm. So all companies, whether they liked it or not, had to be pushed in the direction where we either get to these customers on their handsets or we're going to lose out on them. Right. So it really made the shift to, to mobile very, very fast. Um, and then coming back to us, that rise of startup uh, based focused companies really helped us grow okay. because we got, we got to really kind of help them explain to a lot of media outlets what, what does it mean to, when you go online and you buy a voucher discounted mm -hmm. how does that work mm -hmm. how do I redeem it how do I collect the money is it safe is it better than cash on delivery why should I use my car so there was a lot of things in that sphere that kind of helped us grow and over time gave us a reputation that we are very good at what we do in that in that sphere. In other words, having other startups as clients, yes, or definitely. being, but you're also simultaneously participating yeah. in the startup ecosystem because Not, you were yeah. a startup. Technically, right? yes. Technically, I mean, we don't identify as the typical startup, which okay. goes out of its way to find seed funds, angel investors, and mm -hmm. round A and round B. And so, so you forth. didn't you didn't go through that process. No, I mean, the entire company was technically funded by ourselves, okay. and it was a bit of a challenge because <clears throat> we literally had to scrape what we had. Right. And that sounds money. a lot like a startup yeah. to me. I mean, te technically, yeah. <laughs> You're I mean, scraping yeah, your in, money. In, in, in definition, it was. But the difference is that we never really kind of sought finding third party to come on board and support us. Okay. Um, in that perspective, you didn't have and to take outside funding. You're saying. Correct. Okay. And the basic model of an agency providing services versus actually providing hard products mm -hmm. has a very different approach to it. When you approach people and discuss with them the fact of how they want to fund something, when they consider the fact that you're a service-based company versus a product-based company, people get a little wary. Sure. So you're actually, most of what you actually want to do is up in the air. So if your new business development team doesn't go out and secure enough accounts yeah. over this year, which is in another way tied to the state of the market, right then you might not hit your targets. I'm actually putting my money in a much higher risk than me putting my money in a product-led mm -hmm. company. So that, was, that kind of also gave <clears> us <throat> another uh, decision to make. Do we focus on actually raising money or do we focus on improving our internal processes to make money and for so ourselves? so you made the decision to focus on improving yes, your internal processes absolutely. and developing clients. Yes. And so uh, let's get back to what you were saying. Mm -hmm. You So your initial clients were a bunch of startups Correct, in Dubai? Yeah. Okay. I mean, originally, our, our first client was an, uh, an ad network, what was called an ad network, and they were still on the rise back then, where people would call up an ad network and try to work with them to advertise online to their own networks. And again, budgets weren't that big online back then in this part of the world. I mean, we were, there, we were still witnessing growth in that category here, slowly. And the ad, so the budgets we're talking about, this is social media budgets that you're... Not necessarily. Ad <coughs> networks focus also on websites. So okay. by the way an ad network works is that they go out to approximately 100 publishers and they sign them up. So yeah. they build a network within that. And yeah. then you approach an ad network and say, I am trying to sell a bottle of perfume. And they'll tell you, out of our network, 40 websites fit the profile of the customers who might buy that bottle of perfume. So you give us the ads and then we push it out to that network of sites. That makes that makes sense, and that was the first client we worked with, um, and then through that, we 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 grew from a team of it was really the three of us, um, me, my sister, and my father, to a team of uh, thirteen, based in Dubai, and we have uh, someone on the ground in Saudi Arabia, someone in Egypt, and recently someone in Pakistan, okay. because we've had one specific client who wanted to operate there, and we never really had the experience for that market, so we actually tied up with someone in that market as well. Okay, so let's talk about some of your other clients. So Ad Network was your first 
client, yes, your first correct. big client. Yeah. And then, so yeah. what are some other uh, important clients you've had along I mean, with, to look at the startup scene, because I think this is usually the most interesting to people. Mm -hmm. What's interesting about startups is that you, you won't probably get the same one twice. Okay. So we've gone, so we, so an ad network is an example, Cabone.com, which is a, um, a group buying model that came into the... What's it called? Cabone, C-O-B-O-N-E, mm -hmm. uh, which eventually got sold off to Tiger Global. Um, Sukkar.com, which is a, um, like it's a high-end luxury type um, discount site. So for example, Gucci has stock remaining, they can't get rid of, they give it to sites like those and then they sell them discounted on their flash deals. And what is the URL again? S-U-K-A-R. Sukkar now got absorbed into Sukh, so it's become part ah, of okay. that. And then we looked at um, other people kind of joined the fold, such as Cashu, which is C-A-S-H-U, which was a, a prepaid payment um, card, which mm. people could use instead of a credit card. Mm -hmm. Eventually, they morphed into a payment gateway. So, uh, so well, interestingly, yeah. you said that you only they only hire you once. So what happens? Yeah. They hire you to accelerate yeah. their impact, and then yeah. they and then they don't they don't I need mean, you again. I mean, I think it just depends on the life cycle of the startup. Some okay. startups actually uh, grow with us; they expand into mm -hmm. new markets with us. And some startups either fail, go out the window completely, don't work, or mm -hmm. they maybe uh, sell it off to another company who says we've got our own internal PR team, so we're no longer in need of actually having someone to take care of the PR for that. So it's been very different experiences in that particular industry. Mm -hmm. um, and, at the, and even things now have become a lot better now in 2016 because all of these new startups have moved from just web-based platforms to mobile. Mm -hmm. So we're getting a lot more apps. Right. And obviously there's a lot of variety in there. Everybody's starting to be very different. So who are some of your interesting current clients? You said they're in the kind of in the more yeah. app, in the app space yes. now. I mean, I, honestly, I think the one we're having the most fun with now is called Fetcher, which is F-E-P. T-C-H-R. Mm -hmm. And uh, what Fetcher did is that they kind of came to the Middle East and realized we have a, a major issue with addresses. Okay. That when you, when you we talked about this last know, week as well, yeah. Fetcher. I mean, when you actually call someone up and say, where do you live? It's like literally, uh, mm -hmm. you see that supermarket, you take the second right and take the first mm -hmm. left. It's a very common Arab problem mm -hmm. in the entire region. Mm -hmm. So they thought everyone's basically connected. Everybody's got a GPS location. Why not develop an app that can deliver to you wherever you are? So you're at work and you're expecting a package. The app picks up your location and you choose a time and they develop it to you. Yeah, it's genius. Yeah, and they were so able simple to but so useful. Yeah, and right? they were able to extend the model to actually offer a subservice called Seller, which is S-E-L-L-R. Mm. And how Seller works is that it allows anyone with, um, let's say you're you're someone who likes to develop things at home, be it jewelry, be it clothes, be it cupcakes, whatever it is. Uh, you can actually sell through that platform without setting up a website. So mm. they give you customized pages where you put a product, and you can put those links to that product in, let's say, your Facebook page, your Twitter, your your tweets, your Instagram page, and then they handle the payment, the shipping, the delivery, everything. Mm. So this company yeah, yeah. is red hot. Very, very okay. hot at the, the moment. The seller yes. is their yeah. other app, you're saying? It's, it's integrated into the no, actual Fetcher app okay. as well, yeah. So you have the integration between But the company that. is called Fetcher. Yes, the company is called Fetcher, yes. And they've been winning awards left, right, and center, not thanks mm. to us, just in general as mm. a, um, as as, a, as an app. They've so, what is very, your very what well. was your role in helping Fetcher then? What as mm. what did your company do for them? I mean, in general, for startups as a process, the first step is noise. Mm -hmm. I mean, when, when people come in and they're like, "Listen, we've got this great app. We need people to know about it," and that's where we come in. I mean, the PR process is pretty straightforward in terms of how how we work in terms of creating mass awareness, because um, for PR, you can either go the corporate route 
or the consumer route. And then under, under that, you divide it. Are we going mass? Are we going focused? Mm -hmm. In the case of a delivery app, it's pretty much mass. Everybody needs to do deliveries, not just specific industries. Mm -hmm. So we basically draft the material, prepare the images, whatever is required, and then we use our existing relationship with the media to actually get this news published. Right. And that's the main difference between PR and uh, advertising, is that we refer to PR as earned media. We actually earn the media spot as opposed to paying for it gotcha. in, a, in a newspaper or a magazine title. Um, so that's basically our was our involvement with Fetcher as a brand, and uh, we we don't we didn't do the social consulting for them because they have an internal team who takes care of that mm -hmm. and that's uh, that regard. But for Fetcher, that's basically the work we've done for them. Well, what other other clients do you have that are particularly interesting? Um, besides startups, some really exciting clients we work with are Harley Davidson. We've been okay. working on the Harley business for five years now. The um, Harley so the Harley Davidson. PR for the Middle East? PR and social media in 11 countries. So we do their okay. work in the GCC, in the Levant region, and three countries in North Africa. And what is um, the impact like of the Harley-Davidson brand here? I mean, it, the objective within PR was always to kind of rebrand Harley. Mm -hmm. Because of the nature of how Harley is portrayed in American and Western movies, mm -hmm. they're associated with men with big white beards and wife beaters and exactly. walking around chugging beer, and that's exactly. not a very good image in <laughs> this part of the world. It's not, <laughs> it's not exactly what uh, you So that's a particular yeah. challenge yes, for you definitely. Guys. And also there's the growth of the women category because a lot mm -hmm. of people don't perceive Harley as a very easy um, bike for a female to own. Mm -hmm. So there was that part of the rebranding to be done. Um, on a social front, it was more kind of um, driving traffic towards dealerships. So if you have specific tactical campaigns where let's say a dealer in Kuwait or in Oman or in Saudi Arabia has a specific deal. He needs to drive people on location. Mm -hmm. That's where the involvement of social comes in. And naturally, this has changed a lot over time. Now with how visual things have become with platforms like Instagram, we want to actually know what people are doing. So we need to monitor what people are uploading, see what images are happening. Are people actually organizing rides without us knowing? We want to know about these rides. We want to join these rides, invite them to come to us. So mm -hmm. the spectrum is quite massive mm -hmm. on terms of what we do with Harley. And it's in 11 countries in three languages, English, Arabic, and French. So mm. it keeps it always very exciting. You mean Harley-Davidson is in only 11 countries in the world, or you mean the part that you no, have? Our scope in the, Ar right. in the Arab region includes 11, okay. 11, 11 countries, countries in yes. this region. So let's talk, <clears throat> what you said earlier was quite interesting about how you're trying to rebrand Harley-Davidson for the MENA region. Yes. How do you do that? What is your approach to that? I mean, in, ge in general, the strategy for that was for us to kind of consider the fact is what, what is the issue? Where do people get that perception from? Mm -hmm. And it really came down to the fact is that there's, n there's been no work done on educating people, one, about the culture of Harley, mm -hmm. two, about the, the kind of the, the ease of access to get Harleys. Because the culture of Harley is a very family freedom orient oriented type. Right. When you consider how the it's brand about getting on the open road or just getting out there. It's literally like with the, with the turn of a twist, leave your troubles behind. Yeah. That's basically where, it, right. where, where, everything, where everything comes from. Right. And the company never actually made the effort to consider, uh, or this part of the world at least, uh, maybe they never actually done any work. There was a dealer, very typical like most of the Arab countries, someone here liked Harley, called up the guys in the U.S., said, we want to sell Harleys here. They set up a dealership and they started selling. Mm -hmm. But then... And that's when they hit a wall. Like, basically, yeah. yeah. And there are communities that have sprung up here. There's a lot of people who ride Harleys in this part of the world. Mm -hmm. But then when you consider the fact that when they pass by your high, uh, pass by you, whatever mm -hmm. you are, you're like, oh, he's riding a Harley. And then there is that preconception, like, okay, mm -hmm. if he rides a Harley, he's X, Y, Z. Right. Well, in reality, um, when we do rides 
sometimes some of the people who are actually leading convoys are heart surgeons, are mm. neurosurgeons, are, so you, they come from all walks of life. And that was what we needed to highlight. We needed to actually make it clear to people that not only one category of people rides that specific bike. This right. bike is for everyone, and it's right. available in so many different formats that it can cater to whatever you do. Okay. In that sense, so that was a challenge we had, and I mean, I think it's been going quite well so far. Mm -hmm. um, what's a typical day for you? What do you, you know, uh, what do you do? I mean, it's it's changed a lot recently now, and I think the biggest change comes from the fact that listening tools have become better. Mm -hmm. Originally, when we first started doing social and PR, you'd get into work in the morning, read your emails, catch up on client work, see what's happening, work on campaigns, and basically execute the work. But over time, the entire switch of conversation for it to go out of your control has changed a lot. So when we get in the morning, we have to spend some time kind of surveying what's what's been going on, like. Um, What's been happening? Are people discussing our brands? You call that listening. That's, that's, that's a listening platform. Okay. And that helps us kind of monitor conversations happening around our brand and happening around competitors' brands. So mm -hmm. for example, if we, if we realize, for example, there's a rise in conversation regarding a competitor, we need mm -hmm. to understand why that's happening. Mm -hmm. So that can, it's always very exciting because it changes almost daily. That's interesting. Yeah. So a big part of your job is sort of, in a sense, research and competitive research yes. and paying yeah. attention. Of course. And that applies also to our existing clients because internally we need to, for example, understand why people react to certain types of content mm -hmm. differently than the way they do to others. And um, that, it's, it's, that means the human nature in general is very volatile. So you can't really kind of understand why people actually do this, but you have to kind of try to build the pattern over time kind of realize, okay, everyone's reacting very positively to a certain message we put out. And then we've realized over the past three months that whenever we discuss an X or Y or Z topic, people don't react very well or the images don't do very well or mm -hmm. the content itself So you get, in a sense, spread. a fingertip feel, you have a f yes. your finger on the pulse yeah. of what will work, what will not yes. work, and so on. And the biggest challenge about this is that it changes daily. Mm -hmm. So we never really have one formula that we can apply across the year. Okay. So what was working in January doesn't work in May. Right, yeah. and and that also changes based on external factors. So we we know Ramadan is approaching in June, and we realize that the entire Arab family structure, the way they live their day to day life, changes. Mm -hmm. So we understand that putting up something at ten in the morning will not have the same impact, for example, as putting something at seven p.m. after okay. everyone's had a chance to eat and rest and pick up their phone and waste some time till the TV shows start, right. or whatever it is. And that's why they hire you because you know that. Uh, yes, definitely. <laughs> that, that's, it's, a, it's a very big part of the work we sure. do, just kind right. of understanding uh, the, the, way, the way people react to, to, to the work we do. Absolutely. <clears throat> very interesting. So, you have your finger on the pulse of what's going on trends in social media, digital, in Dubai. That's what you're, yeah. a big part of your job. So, what are some of those trends? What do you think are some of the key trends in the sort of digital media and or social scene in Dubai now and moving forward? I think in general we've become a lot more visual. That's one of the things that I've realized is that uh, primarily within Emiratis as, as, a, uh, as a demographic, they really enjoy being quite vocal about their lives and they quite enjoy following others who are quite vocal about their lives. Mm. Um, we're seeing a massive growth in apps like Snapchat and Instagram that kind of surpass mm -hmm. things like Facebook and Twitter. Uh, right. While Twitter remains very strong in areas like Saudi where they generate the most amount of tweets per capita in the, the world mm -hmm. along with, with YouTube, mm -hmm. um, every market reacts very differently. Hmm. And in Dubai we are seeing a very big growth in video content. Okay. I mean uh, people haven't picked up on things like Periscope as much as things are around the world, but mm -hmm. I think uh, Facebook in general does a better job at this. So when we see right. Facebook Live 
get to open up to everyone. I think a lot of people will be kind of working towards streaming a lot of their activities live on Facebook versus um, Twitter as a platform. So I think Snapchat um, and Instagram at the moment are basically where most of the noise is taking place. Uh, what, what's your opinion of Snapchat and or of the user experience yeah. of Snapchat? Do you think it's, uh, what's the demographic for that in your opinion? I mean, Snapchat, I think originally, um, when it first started, it was a much younger crowd. Right. When it first began, it was, they were expecting people maybe within the age brackets of maybe 16 to 24 to be the biggest ones on it. But then as it grew and as it developed, I think everyone is now jumping on board on it. From okay, beyond, so you're, say, you're yeah. saying it's going mainstream in other words. I think it's already mainstream. They've, right. re they've registered the biggest growth in 2015 in terms mm -hmm. of percentage numbers right. globally mm -hmm. across all social platforms. Mm -hmm. And uh, slowly we're seeing brands and publishers jump on board to kind of try to document more information about their brands uh, in that sense. What, what, what brands in Dubai and or the Middle East are using Snapchat well? I mean, uh, Huawei is a very big example. They've basically uh, been executing a quite a big university campaign over the past couple of months. Huawei? Yeah, the, the, the mobile mobile phone uh, right, right, developers. Right, right. And uh, they <coughs> basically went to universities around the region, tried to kind of find the cool kids mm -hmm. and picked up their Snapchat accounts and kind of worked hmm. with them on making them Huawei ambassadors via Snapchat to, 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 to grow that channel. It's been all over Twitter. I mean, they're, they've been pumping some hard budgets behind okay. pr promoting that message. But so, so they're cross-posting, you mean from Snapchat to Twitter? Or what do you no, mean? They're, they're promoting mm -hmm. on Twitter the fact that you mm -hmm. can actually follow the Snapchat account oh, of I see. those specific I individuals. See. Mm -hmm. I mean, ultimately, we were, we were always going to have a crossover between mm -hmm. platforms where right. we use one platform to push to push another. Mm -hmm. And you can see now that, well, you're seeing it a lot now, like uh, this massive growth of Snapchat's filters that people spend hours kind right. of goofing this, around. This thing is huge, yeah, Snapchat yeah. filter. And it's actually given rise to apps independently on the side. Right. I mean, Jimmy Kimmel on TV yesterday featured an app called Masquerade, mm -hmm. which actually grew massively because of how big the Snapchat filters became. So it's a, yeah. in other words, it's, it's building up a developer community around mm -hmm. creating, yeah. creating yeah. sort of ancillary yeah. products for Snapchat. Yes. Yeah. But the thing is, what's always interesting for us from the marketing perspective about Snapchat is that we genuinely have no hard way of measuring its impact. We mm. don't know how many followers a person has. We don't know how many people view the videos. On Snapchat, you on mean? Snapchat. This information is sort of hidden. It, it's, it's literally, it's, it's only reserved for your own device. Yeah. So if I, if I upload an actual video, I am aware 200 people have seen my video. But if I'm trying to research the impact of someone else, mm -hmm. I genuinely can't tell who watches his videos unless I sit with them and they give me a media deck mm -hmm. of what they've been doing. Mm -hmm. Versus, for example, Twitter, you're very well aware. Sure, the someone, metrics are all Exactly, out. the metrics are available. And if someone tweets something, you can tell the reach of the tweet, mm -hmm. how many retweets, how many favorites. I mean, you can get a bit of an indication of how someone performs. And also with the fact that people refer to Snapchat content as dark content. So it basically goes dark after 24 hours. Right. So things don't- Dark yeah, content. Yeah, it's almost like a dark internet. But, <laughs> but, there, but also that's another security thing. People have to be wary yeah. of that. This, this content can be stolen. Mm -hmm. As much as people tell you, you can't save information from Snapchat. Mm. There are a lot of tools that you can use to kind of others take, pic take people's photos, take people's videos, that is uh, available. But I don't think it's gotten to a point where from our end, we need to save this data. Mm -hmm. We need to kind of find a way for us to actually measure things either through maybe measuring drive to locations. If, uh, do we, have we heard pe more people buying our product mentioning a specific hmm. famous Snapchat or, that, or um, something under, or along, along those lines? So yeah, it does remain a very hard platform for us to measure yet. But I think it's a very hard platform. Yeah. But at the same time, there's no doubt that it's blowing up. It's yeah, an expanding yeah. platform. Of course. So if I'm a, if I'm a Dubai-based 
startup and I hire you and I say I want to have a big impact on Snapchat. Yeah. Well, how would, and I say, help me do that. Yeah. I mean, uh, the, the issue with Snapchat is one, um, there is no way for you to promote it using money. So uh, okay. as opposed to Facebook and Twitter, you can launch a media campaign and then you can promote the page, you can promote the account. So you can actually pump a media campaign behind right. Snapchat. You can promote Snapchat using that money on different platforms, but huh. that's, that's not why people use Twitter. And that's because yeah. Snapchat won't take money or what? They don't have an open platform for advertising just yet. Right. They are working with publishers who hmm. promote accounts such as BuzzFeed, And I've IGN. seen that, right. They are, they are producing material uh, for them. But there's no money exchanging hands there? Uh, not at the moment, no. Okay. That's why I think also we don't, well at least from my research, I'm not exactly sure how Snapchat's actually monetized its model or like where all their money is coming from. Maybe they're not do, making any money at all. They are, and they do have a model <coughs> running in the U.S. where Snapcash can be used to transfer money oh, that's to right. accounts. That's not active globally. Okay. And also we have to also keep in mind that we don't get all the iterations of websites or apps here that they do abroad. I mean, Twitter as a, as a platform has a very different login page in London. I was there last week, and when mm -hmm. you open Twitter, it looks nothing like the login page we get here. Mm -hmm. So different markets get the pilot advancements before we get it. We mm -hmm. usually get the end product, and by the time we actually get it, there are new things happening that we don't have access to hmm. uh, in that sense. And Snapchat's biggest challenge as well is producing original content. Okay. Because the only reason you want to follow a brand as opposed to following your friend mm -hmm. is you want to be entertained, you want to find something that's interesting to you. Right. And that is the question that we pose to clients. Oh, okay, here's a brief, I want to be on Snapchat. Okay, setting up a Snapchat account takes five seconds. Mm -hmm. What are you going to post about? Mm -hmm. And then that's where the silence usually hits in, and they either throw it back at you, or that's your job. Technically, yeah. technically no, <laughs> it's not really my job to, right. to kind of tell you what, what what the thing, what uh, what to produce is. There are specific cases where we have to produce content for clients and that's where we need to do the brainstorming. Mm -hmm. But I think because people kind of overreact to what's hot right now, right. everybody's running to be on a specific platform. Like what, Snapchat what, is the big thing now, everyone's on it, we need to be on it. What is the content, in your opinion, that does work on Snapchat? In general, it's, I'd say across all video platforms, mm -hmm. comedy is always the best performing. Comedy, thing. Okay. When you look at Vine, Mm -hmm. I mean, Vine is still around, but it's not as big as it was. Right. The biggest players on Vine were comedians, people who mm -hmm. were able to produce fits of laughter to the audience within six seconds. Sure. Whatever they were, even in the Arab world, there were so many people who grew massively on Vine through the medium of comedy mm -hmm. by using um, cliches or stereotypes from the Arab street to project a certain six-second video. And you, you look at pages like Arab Vines on Facebook, they're filled with people playing on the stereotype of Arab moms, for example. That's a very common one. I'm, mm -hmm. sure, I'm sure everyone who, who, who looks up any type of Arab Vine thing will find the entire family relationship, which to us is very amusing as people growing up in the Arab world. So I think mm -hmm. comedy does very well. Mm -hmm. um, I think some people sometimes fall into the trap sometimes of trying to produce content that's a bit too serious. Nah. And Snapchat is quite quick, it's 10 seconds, it's right? It's not so the right yeah. platform. Another thing that's grown very well in the UAE primarily is um, an example here is Khaled Al-Amri. Khaled Al-Amri is a gentleman in Abu Dhabi who came back from the US and he basically is addressing a lot of social issues, uh, social issues with growing up as an Emirati. So he spends a lot of time on Snapchat giving advice to young Emiratis on how to address issues in relationships, mm. in social s scenarios, and social situations, and growing up, and going to university, how to deal with heartbreaks. This type of kind of motivational Deepak Chopra almost uh, mm. zone. Yeah. And he's blown up massively. He's but, but, but how yeah. do you know? Because you said earlier you can't tell, you can't measure. 
So how we do you can't measure that on Snapchat. But, but then you go and you see what he's retweeting on Twitter. People mm -hmm. who watch him on Snapchat mm -hmm. go out of their way to tweet their love to him on different platforms. And so they yes. they mentioned that they saw the content yes. on Snapchat. Yes, okay. and he's and he's active enough to actually spend time to reply to every single one of them. Mm -hmm. That's basically kind of like one of the things that has made him get to where he is. Is that he's mm -hmm. not the type who just talks about something that vanishes. He's there interacting where the interactions happen. Because interactions on Snapchat vanish as well. So when you actually send someone a message, either via text or via video, that vanishes within 10 seconds. On Twitter, it's forever. So people make it a point that they want to thank that person. They want to hear back from him publicly on another platform that they can actually look back to. Mm. And um, Khalid, for example, going back to his story, did a great job at resigning from his own post to go and teach for free in schools because he, there was a it was a quite what a big story. What was his post again before? Uh, well, his username. No, what was his post? You said he, he resigned. Used to work, his post. If I'm not mistaken, he used to work for Mubadala, which is quite oh. a big gig. Okay. Basically, based a bit of uh, based in Abu Dhabi government. Okay. And he left that to go work as a teacher for mm. a while to, to project a certain message regarding an issue with teaching, mm. with an Emirati being a teacher because. We do, there is a, unfortunately, I was born here, and I, I mm -hmm. understand the frustration of Emiratis because there is a stereotype that mm -hmm. Emiratis might be, for example, not as hardworking as Arab expats or as European expats, but mm -hmm. we have to understand the UAE is a very young country. Mm -hmm. So what they've built in the past 45 years yeah. has taken other countries hundreds of years to build. So over True. time, they will get to, to that level. We've just got to be patient and kind of go down that path with them as well. So. Those two categories to me always seem to be the ones that perform very well. Primarily comedy one uh, and entire inspirational type one does very well. So the, that, that's a good last question, I think a wrap-up question yeah. for you is what do you see as the biggest challenges, I guess, to um, expanding, like maybe to just doing PR specifically mm. for you, doing digital sort of marketing and digital PR mm. in Dubai and the region. What are the biggest challenges? Um, to divide it into two separate parts, on a personal level, mm -hmm. I think personal branding is something that people should not be scared of. I mean, we okay. are now kind of in, a, in an era where um, the world is interconnected at all levels. And you, you have to understand that the moment you're online, you're online. There is, there is no type of, I mean, if people talk about privacy, I kind of chuckle when I hear, either, hear that. <coughs> you have to be very well aware that the moment you go down the route of personal branding on the internet and working to promote yourself, you have to give away some of your privacy. You become a public person, sort of. Basically, and mm -hmm. people will, will relate to you a lot better if they find someone who's really genuine. Right. about how they discuss their life, what they do, and so forth. So that's a challenge yeah. because you think there's yeah. there's a hesitance to... It, it conflicts directly with how reserved our culture is in general in the, in the Arab world. I mean, when if, if you go to speak to families and tell them, oh, I've posted this video about what I'm doing over the weekend, most people are like, why are you, why are you projecting your life out in public to everyone? Mm -hmm. in, in, in video, in images, this is content that people mm -hmm. can maybe steal. Is this a generational thing? I think so. I think it will it will change over time. Mm -hmm. I think there there will still be people who might be kind of conservative about it. I mean, right. the conservative liberal debate will go on forever. That'll, that'll, I think that will always be there. Yeah. Um, from a company perspective, I think a lot of companies make the mistake of not setting aside correct budgets for working okay. with digital. I think a lot of people kind of go like, oh, it's fine, we'll just spend the money on good salaries, hiring the right people and everything. So you set up this great platform. Mm. And then when you come and you realize that growing on social is no longer as cheap as it used to be. Right. No, it's a crowded market. Yes, it's a very crowded market. Yeah. It's getting more expensive by the minute. Um, and the prices keep fluctuating daily. So the biggest challenge is actually finding someone who walks into the door and says, I want to do something online. And I actually have a specific budget set for it. So here, take this and play with it. Give me the results I want. Mm -hmm. In a lot of cases, there are uh, companies or clients who come to you with 
kind of growing like we never really thought this is important and it's like it's it is it's basically where everyone is now okay so that's where the money should so go so what's I a think. healthy budget then is that is it, all, is it too differentiated I, th I think it's, it's, it's very hard to just throw a number up in the air. There yeah. are people who spend millions. Yeah. And there are people who spend thousands. But dollars or dirhams? Dollars. Okay. But if you're clever with the way you spend the money, mm. um, you can get the results you want. Right. Yeah. So there's an efficiency factor. Absolutely. There is an optimization thing that happens. And there are agencies that specialize in this. There are mm. people who sit all day just looking at how the, how the content is performing. Mm. And if they, if they realize that the money I'm spending on promoting something isn't generating the results I want, is there a job to re-optimize or fix things to make sure it does.